Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Here in New York, I'm really pleased to say that joining us now is Jeff Dennis, UBS Head of Global Emerging Markets Equity Strategist, and he joins us on the phone. Jeff, great to catch up with you, sir. Some confidence and some optimism that you have in EM. Tell me how you convince the investor right now who has shifted investments towards the United States to shift back international. I think there's a couple. There's a couple of things that really highlight this. First of all, um, our view is that apart from one or two countries, uh, actually three countries, really, Turkey, South Africa, and Brazil, you've not really seen a deterioration in a key deterioration in EM fundamentals during the course of this year. Those three countries, you have seen that deterioration. And that means once you get to see global financial markets settle down, and for us that means the dollar stops going up and starts to go down again, I think money will come back into the Markets. So it's a mixture of reasonably sound fundamentals in, in most of the emerging market countries combined with our view the dollars going lower over the course of the rest of this year and into 2019. And what that will do is pull money back towards the emerging markets. Jeff, is dollar weakness a prerequisite for EM equity to start performing again? That is that is my view for sure. We, uh, I mean, at the very least, you need dollar stability. But you you pose the question right at the beginning by saying what gets people to move out of the yeah. U.S. and look for emerging markets. I think the weaker dollar is, is part of that. And uh, if I was sitting here in the house view was the dollar was going a lot stronger, it would be just very hard to be optimistic about EM. So in my view, yes, it is absolutely critical to our to the view that you'll get some gains in EM over the rest of the year. I don't think it's going to be a blowout or anything. Like like that, but we expect markets to be higher by the end of the year by around seven, eight percent from current levels. Dollars key to that. From a 35,000 feet view, the regional shift has been quite remarkable over the last six months away from international into the United States. Yeah. If you are thinking about shaping things to pivot back, Jeff, there's some countries out there that have aggressively high interest rates, including countries like Turkey and Argentina. Mm-hmm. Let's break mm-hmm. EM down a little bit more. Where are you looking? Well, uh, as I say, I think that, for example, if you if we look at Turkey, Turkey's done some dramatic things on interest rates recently, although it was obviously very much delayed, and, and they've still got very large fundamental issues, which is a huge current account deficit, which makes them vulnerable to any, any hiccup in terms of global financial conditions. We think you should be more looking at the countries that have responded well in terms of monetary policy to the pressures of recent months, where we think in a weaker dollar environment, you will get some, some flows coming back in a very very good example of that is Indonesia, which has been hit very badly this year. We think the fundamentals are, are frankly perfectly okay. Okay, they've got a modest current account deficit, but a, in a weaker dollar environment, I think that goes away as a concern. So Indonesia is a place we look. We look at Korea, which is a very cheap market. Once again, of course, there, I guess the risk in Korea is people being concerned about what the trade war, which I guess is what we have to call it between the U.S. and China, what that could do for Chinese growth and therefore a follow-on for Korean exports. But the market is very cheap. And I give you one in Latin America. We like Mexico a lot. We think the currency is very oversold still. We think that the NAFTA, whatever we're going to call it in future, is going to get redone, and the economy continues to tick along. You know, not very strong, but um, perfectly okay. So those are some examples of markets we take a look at. Are those markets, are their banking and their finance, is that the opportunity to buy the established banks of Um, these EM markets? 
we do happen to be overweight financials, and we do think that is a good way to, to go back into these markets for the, for the medium to long term. Um, your listeners may not be aware, but basically 50% of the MSCI Emerging Market Index now is technology and banks. The tech's wow. a bit more Five than 25 on. Banks are a bit less than 25%. Wow. So you've got to go one to, one to the <clears> other. We're not pushing technology dramatically, although you know we, we wouldn't be underweight text shares at this point in EM. But we think the better way to play it is through financials. And there's reasons for that. Um, you're getting credit cycles in, in certain economies. Yeah. Um, you are seeing a, a bit of margin improvement as interest rates have gone up around the world. And frankly, our analyst for EM banks also thinks a lot of banks in EM and ever right. in different places as well. But Jeff, you You've been doing this since time began and where, John, it used to be like an act of God. You put 10% of your money in EM and never more because it was too risky. How much do you put in EM within a blended portfolio? Is UBS saying that the, the developed country and particularly the United States market is so rich that you load the boat on EM? How do you grade that? Definitely not. You don't load the boat on EM because, unfortunately, so much of how EM behaves will be determined not by what EM itself is doing, but by what global financial markets overall are doing. And that, of course, means Fed, bond yields, um, and the dollar itself. So um, if we could time this right, we'd all be very much richer than we are. The problem is timing it is, is difficult. And so EM is about um, 11% now of the, of the global benchmark. And, and I don't think it makes a lot of sense for investors to be m putting much more than that amount amount of money into EM unless they're smarter than me in terms of trying to time it. I think we, we still like the U.S. market. Our U.S. strategists put out a note yesterday. We think that the heightened trade war could give you a short-term pullback, but we're still looking at um, 31.50 on S&P at the end of the year. So actually, I think the U.S. will be, you know, a competitive place to put money for emerging markets over the rest of the year. So I'm not sure we're going to see huge outperformance, but I certainly think the time when you want to be major underweight EM, which will, of course would have been the call for the first nine months of this year. I think that that time is probably beginning to come to an end now. Jeff, I just want to get a final word on what's coming out of China at the moment. They've promised this morning not to weaponize the currency, but the data in the last 24 yeah. hours showing they're trimming their treasury holdings. Now, there's going to be some big conspiracy theories out there, so please dismiss yep. them if you can. Give us the reality check. What's happening we, with we, China? We, we certainly think they're not going to use the devaluation of the currency to as a response on the trade side. We also don't think they're going to shed, if you like, their um, their treasury holdings. But I think it's a question of stocks versus flows. We think what is quite likely is China will not buy as much U.S. debt at the margin going forward. So I buy as much as they've done in the past. Um, but we, we don't believe they're going to sell their stock of debt they've already got. So I think Chinese demand at the margin may come down, but, you know, for them to actually start selling aggressively what they own will just make things worse for themselves because they'll, they'll have to sell into a falling market. So weaponizing either bonds or the dollar is still, or the currency, I should say, still very unlikely. We think what China is still trying to do is to be constructive as much as possible, um, uh, considered responses to what's going on in the U.S. and see how this plays out. Because at the end of the day, a major, major breakdown of economic relationships between China and, and the U.S. is dangerous for China because it puts the economy under more pressure. So I think cautious, considered responses by the right. Chinese will continue to be the most likely thing to expect here. Nuance. Jeff Dennis, thank you so much with UBS.
Live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios, I'm really pleased to say the former GE Vice Chair has dropped by. Beth Comstock, author now of Imagine It Forward, Courage, Creativity and the Power of Change. Beth, good morning to you. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Can we just start by talking about the time when you, um, you turned down Steve Jobs, he gets on the phone and gives you a call out of nowhere and you say no eventually, how does that work? Yeah, well, I was at NBC at the time, uh, leading dig- the digital uh, in the digital future, and it was a tough assignment. And I got to work with Apple, and uh, they'd reached out to me about a job. At first, it was in the iTunes area, and I get a call one day, and it's like Steve Jobs sort of lobbying, hey, I'd like, just want to say, we'd love to have you here. And he said something, uh, uh, it was, the iPhone hadn't been introduced, and he said, uh, things are gonna get really big here. And, uh, and it just didn't seem like the right job for me at the time, so I said no. Um, and then he came back a couple of months later. He was looking for some, a, a new uh, sort of innovation role, certainly around clean tech. And I said no again. Do you and regret it? I, uh, I did regret it for, for a while for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, I remember sitting at the kitchen table with my husband. We were going through the financials going, how big could this stock ever be really? I mean, really. <laughs> um, so clearly, I didn't imagine that forward. Um, and um, and I think I, I it, partly it was I didn't want I didn't I saw them as a technology company I was mm-hmm. in media wanted to do content so I, I had a clear strategic reason for not wanting to do it but sure I regretted it Apple went on to become this amazing juggernaut I think I could have learned to be better I think Jobs and that team would have pushed me to be better I regretted that and right. maybe there was a bit of fear in not taking it and I sort of regretted that but in the end I was very loyal to my company I had good reasons for not wanting to move my family and taking that on. Right. A, a lot of people, David Brooks has been great about this, the, the smooth people and, and, and the masters of business administration, MBA people always have a zeitgeist of the moment. The present MBA zeitgeist, what do they get wrong about the realities of managing? Yeah, I love that question. I, I it's my uh, only good one this yeah, week. Yeah, no, it's you your own. It. You're good. I, um, mm, I, re- but Pharaoh's great. <laughs> I recruited at GE. I would recruit up to 150 MBAs every year for about a decade. So I got to work. I didn't go to business school. You've I've, you've heard every line. I've um, and why we recruited them and why I was attracted to MBAs is they come with an amazing toolkit. What MBAs are not trained to do is to be entrepreneurial or encouraged to be entrepreneurial and put in those situations of figuring it out. And the argument I'm making in my book is that we're just in such a time of such disruptive change that there is no toolkit right. for that. And what's great, John, about her book is they fight like cats and dogs. I mean, she's, <laughs> yeah. you know, like page 152, there's four people in a room screaming at everybody. Here's a big question that for you. That would never happen on surveillance. <laughs> no, but that happens in a commercial breaks between <laughs> oh, you and you I. Know. And let me tell you, you here at like the Bloomberg Interactive vibes, Broker I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure our audience can work that out for themselves. Oh, you think um, they discovered that? Beth, this year, two big corporate stories. Perhaps defined by mismanagement, Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, Tesla, Elon Musk, with a big question that I know that you can answer. Can you be an entrepreneur in a company as big as Facebook, as big as Tesla? I I wonder. I I, I wonder. I think this is a challenge for every company and investors to think about. We have these few amazing leaders who seemingly do it, but there is also a time when you maybe need to change out the leadership from and have them have a different kind of role. I'm not suggesting Mark Zuckerberg should should step aside, but does he have enough people around him that can help him think through? Really, in this case, to me, Facebook was an imagine it forward challenge, right? Were they thinking ahead of those unintended consequences that could have happened? I would say maybe there would be 
need for more strategic thinking there. Elon Musk seems to me to be a good case of needing a great to build culture and a great team. And you can't expect the leader to do everything. And maybe he's signed up to do more than he should. How difficult is it, though, to change a culture when the culture is defined by the entrepreneur who founded the company? Yeah, well, I think that is the big challenge. We expect them to be superhuman, these, these business gods, and they are not. Well, then the business gods is they've got to delegate at some point. And so much of it is succession. So much of it is just the day-to-day grind of delegating. How do you delegate constructively and do it with courage, creativity, and truly a power to change? I mean, that's the issue, isn't it? Yeah, well, look at look at Musk and Tesla. I mean, I only know what I read, but a lot of people have left in the past six months. Obviously, it's a stressful situation, but if you put the investment into the team yeah. and delegating we, and saying, I don't, he needs to say, I don't have all the answers. I need you to figure it out. Here's where we're going. Okay. You help us get I, there. I got to squeeze in this question because John's only working like a 38-hour week with his four <laughs> properties. Are we working too long of weeks? Um, Our parents didn't do this, did they? Well, I would say, I don't know. I, I think we're working maybe on the wrong things too long. I'm big on getting out and discovering, get out and seeing where trends are. And I think we're That's in the same meetings. Yeah. We do that. Are bar. you in the same meetings too often, <laughs> having the same discussions? You probably shouldn't do that. No, but, but just the whole, you, know, you, you got 20% of the population working 70 and 80 hour weeks, yeah. it seems. And do they, are they working smart? I think that's the question. Maybe if it's 70 hours and 10% of it's out discovering trends yeah. in the future, I'd say that's worth yeah. it. Beth Comstock, thank you so much. The book is Imagine It Forward, Courage, Creativity, and the Power of Change. And what's glorious about it, I'll be direct, is all of you that are fed up with thought leaders, this is the anti-thought leader book. That sounds like it a book is, for me. It is. No, I'm <laughs> serious. Like I'm a death, book for dummies. I, I am <laughs> thought leaders. No, but I'm so sick of thought leadership. What does that even mean? It doesn't days? mean what anything. Doesn't mean? And, you know, yeah. you're in here, there's a lot of yelling and screaming and people ornery. You know, they try to come to uh, decisions that are constructive. Like her brilliant decision not to load the boat on Apple stock at three <laughs> no, or four. Let me tell you, Beth Comstock's not alone in making that <laughs> decision that back right. in 05, 06. Beth, thank okay. you so much. Thanks Imagine for it forward. Me. Thanks a lot. It is always good to speak to a gentleman of the legislative branch, but even better to speak to someone who actually understands executive capabilities. More important than anything, he's the former mayor of Dayton, Ohio, holding court in the 10th district of Ohio, south, I'm gonna call it southwest of Columbus. Uh, Michael Turner joins us this morning. Congressman, thrilled to have you uh, with us. What did you learn, Congressman, about the special election to your Northeast, the 12th congressional district? How do you guys get Republican turnout for the midterm election? Well, Tom, thank you. Appreciate you having me this morning and um, for, uh, you know, focusing on Ohio. I think the issue probably for most people is is getting out to vote uh, coming up this this November. I think that uh, if you look across the country, people see that the economy is improving. They see that um, the uh, outlook is bright. You know, Ohio frequently um, leads in recession and lags in recovery. Uh, Right now, Ohio is strong. So we know that the economy is strong. Um, You know, Special elections always have uh, different turnouts in general elections because they're scheduled at irregular times, which is what occurred in Columbus mm-hmm. um, for the uh, for that congressional race. I think pretty much everyone knows that the elections coming up in, in November is the one that's important that they need to turn out for. And I think that's the one that um, where people are going right. to you know, voice their opinion that the economy is strong. Um, 
we need to uh, continue the uh, the direction we're going to build jobs. Just one more question in the politics before we get to your important abilities in armed services and intelligence, and that is, and I don't mean you in the 10th district, but as a general statement, do you want the president to show up? I mean, is he helping mainstream Republicans like you right now? Well, I, you know, um, I think the president in, in focusing on the economy is, is probably the, the best place that we need him to be. Um, and that's where um, he's he's making headway. Uh, we can see it with the um, you know renegotiated NAFTA with Mexico. We yeah. can see it uh, with the job report. I, I think his focus there, I think, is probably the the one that uh, resonates with the people, um, you know, at their kitchen tables and what's happening in their household. And that's where his voice is probably most important. Let's talk about your abilities coming as out of mayor of Dayton, and of course, with Wright Patterson there. You've always looked at armed services, the protecting protection of our Air Force assets. Uh, right now, there is a dialogue with Russia. Do we risk, with all the back and forth of the Russia probe and all that, do we risk giving up intelligence secrets? You know, I, I, this is this is an important debate, I think, with respect to overall our democracy. And there's, there's you know three real important issues for us to address here. One, obviously, is Russian meddling. Um, we need to make certain we identify the ways in which they're attempting to do that. They've done it in Europe. They've done it you know, in the Baltics. Um, specifically, they're, they're you know, trying to interfere there in the politics. We saw it even in Macron's election in, in France. Uh, getting an understanding of what they have undertaken uh, to try to affect public opinion and democracies and dabble in our democracies and elections is incredibly important. The second, of course, is the, the issue with respect to the president himself and his campaign, and I think Hillary Clinton's campaign and the, and the, and the um, Democratic National Committee. That's an important dialogue to have. Um, and, you know, what occurred there, I mean, the fact that um, Hillary Clinton's campaign, the Democratic National Committee, funded a, a former British spy to go to the Russians to find dirt on uh, their opponent is certainly, I think, equally as important uh, of, a, of an issue to review. And then, then thirdly, this this issue of what was happening in the Department of Justice and our intelligence community. It clearly appears that there were abuses there, uh, certainly in the FISA court, where um, yeah. politically funded opposition materials were used and as evidence in a court for the purposes of getting surveillance on a, a presidential mm-hmm. campaign. Um, you know, all of those things, I think, are incredibly important for us to get but are, right. But are we, they, within the day-to-day grind of you doing this in the legislative offices, are we naive about the Russians? To me, the, whatever the Republican or Democrat, Secretary Clinton, President Trump, whatever the dirt is of the moment, are we just naive about the Russia impulse into our domestic affairs? Well, I think, um, I, I think per- perhaps the whole West is, including the United States and our European allies. Because we, we, you know, we saw even after the Berlin Wall fell, I, a sense of, you know, there are partner NATO declaring that we don't even have uh, Russia as an adversary. Um, you know, adversaries self-select. And Russia certainly has uh, self-selected that. Uh, they see both in meddling in our democracies, in their aggressiveness, in invasion of Georgia, Ukraine, uh, their military buildup, their modernization of the nuclear weapons, their self-declaration of uh, what their trigger is for using nuclear weapons, they are our adversaries. Uh, Congressman, in the time that we've got left, I really want to turn back to something I think Americans are remarkably naive about, and that we look at the Wright brothers as being down in the Carolinas in the iconic photo of the plane on the beach. 
And yet your district is the heart of our original aviation district. You're no doubt a supporter of, of Wright-Patterson, which was the Wilbur Wright Field of the 1920s and, and all that. Tell us about the need that we have to husband our Air Force <clears throat> assets in a time of peace. It always slips away, doesn't it? And what is Wright-Patterson Air Force Base doing to keep that energy going? And particularly, I look at the 88th Air Base Wing. What's the forward motion in a time of peace? I mean, that's, a, that's a great point, and I appreciate that. The, um, you know, with the Wright brothers and their innovation, you know, where they uh, you know, built and, and did all their, uh, their research in Dayton, Ohio, and as you mentioned, in which North Carolina achieved the first flight, came back to Wright Pat. From that point through stealth, our engineers and scientists have tried to invent in, in, you know, advance us with ingenuity. What happens frequently is we cut our budget and we, yeah. we stop that, that learning, that, that advancement of ingenuity until we have an adversary who goes past us. And we're seeing that with China with what they've done in stealing our technology for the F-35, where we're now looking to modernize the F-35. Instead of us challenging our engineer and scientists and saying, let's know, let's reach as far as we can, we always say, well, let's just reach just a you know, smidgen past where our adversaries are doing. And that creates okay. risk. So I'm at a rotary outside Washington Crossing, and I'm listening to you go on about this. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. What about the wrench that costs a thousand dollars? Are we anywhere near better efficiency of budgets for the Pentagon? Absolutely. Um, we, we, we've instituted um, auditing. We've also instituted uh, reform in uh, acquisition. And I think we're doing probably probably the most important thing, and that is we're reaching past our large uh, in, uh, industrial defense industrial base to small companies that have innovation and being able to pull that forward. The ability to, for them to be able to work with the federal government, with the Department of Defense, and bring that ingenuity to the table is, is probably where we not only see savings, but advancement in technology. Well, Congressman, let's leave it there. Michael Turner, love to talk to you always out of Dayton, Ohio, the former mayor of Dayton, of course, representing the 10th uh, Congressional District. I said this yesterday, folks, and I really mean it, in that all the years of Bloomberg, this is maybe the best one-hour interview I've seen. It is with a gentleman who is misunderstood and a great mystery to so many within investment, finance, economics of America, and within our corporate experiment, and that would be Jeffrey Bezos of Amazon. That must mean and always mean David Rubenstein. The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer -peer conversations, of course, uh, an hour conversation between Mr. Rubenstein and Jeff Bezos, and David Rubenstein joins us now. Uh, 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 David, a kid out of New Mexico goes to Princeton just absolutely excels and achieves and what's remarkable in your conversation is the set of many failures he had on the path to success congratulations on what i would suggest is the interview of the year well thank you um jeff uh is somebody i've known for quite a while and in fact uh when he was getting company started uh one of my companies uh, carlisle was was involved a little bit we got some stock, but we didn't think it would be that successful, so we sold it too soon. It's probably worth $5 billion or, day, or so today. I 
I pointed it out to him. Jeff is an extremely smart person who doesn't really want to be called the richest man in the world, which is what he now is. But because Amazon has done so well this year, the stock is up 70%. He is now by far the richest man in the world with a net worth of $160 billion or so. On the day that I interviewed him in front of about 2,000 people from the yeah. Washington business community, um, he announced a $2 billion gift, uh, a part of a philanthropy effort that he's beginning. But his main focus in philanthropy has, has really been his... Uh, Blue Origin, which he regards as a philanthropic right. effort to kind of improve our ability to travel in outer space. Uh, the company has been done spectacularly well over the years. But he has been private. Among the movers and shakers, David, I would suggest he's the one that we as in a collective America know the least about. What is the management method of Jeff Bezos? What's the day-to-day method that he uses? Well, he would say that uh, his style is somewhat different than others. He doesn't like to have meetings before 10 a.m. He likes to get eight hours of sleep, and most macho CEOs don't want to admit they need eight hours of sleep or want to get eight hours of sleep. Um, He doesn't like PowerPoint presentations and has banned them. He likes memos instead of PowerPoint presentations. He likes to spend a lot of time with his family and his kids. But also, he is a person who says he makes most of his good decisions by intuition not by a detailed analysis and strategic uh, kind of memos. He likes intuition. That's what he said really has helped him. He said his best decisions are made by intuition. I asked him what his intuition was and where he was going to place the second headquarters, and he, of course, laughed. And he has a very famous laugh, but he demurred and said that he wouldn't make that announcement until the end of the year, yeah. and no one really knows uh, what he's going to do who's outside the company. You know, one thing that I'm struck by with the $2 billion uh, philanthropy announcement that he made was how long it took for him to make this move and just the scope of what he could potentially do with his riches. Did you get a sense of why he waited so long and whether he's about to unleash the floodgates of his cash or uh, whether this is just basically uh, the final act here? Well, uh, remember, a lot of the wealth has come in just in the last year or so. The stock is up so much this year that it's not nearly it's nearly doubled his net worth in the last let's say year and a half or so so he's always wealthy in the last 5 10 15 years but now that the money is staggering uh secondly he has uh, been unlike many people who built these great companies um he's still the CEO uh many people who are very very wealthy at this level step down by the time they reach this age, but he's still focused on running the company, so that's taken a lot of his time and energy. And third, he regards his Blue Origin effort as philanthropy. Um, He puts in over a billion dollars a year in it, and he would regard that as philanthropy. But I sense that he's going to spend more and more time on philanthropic efforts. He made a $2 billion announcement, and it got a fair amount of attention, but you know, in the old days, $2 billion philanthropic gift would be staggering. Today, it's not seen as staggering when you consider the kind of wealth that has been given away by Bill Gates or Warren Buffett. But I do think that he will be uh, increasing yeah. his efforts there. I, I'm, I'm afraid to ask what an all-hands-on meeting is like at Carlisle. Have you ever done that, David? Have you ever uh-huh. gotten so upset that you walked out on the floor and said, hey, all you smart guys, get over here. We are now having – have you ever done an all-hands meeting? Uh, well, we have people all over the world. It's hard to do them all together. But we just had our annual uh, investor conference, and yeah. we had about a couple hundred people from our firm here. But, uh, look, Jeff Bezos uh, is obviously in a different level than I am in terms of his intellect, his ability to build the company and to build something that's going to last forever. Uh, while I think my company is very, right. very good. Jeff has built something that is obviously yeah. the most global phenomenon we've ever seen, and he's really reshaped so many different businesses. I think the interview is really well 
we're all worth watching. And normally our show is about a half hour. Yeah. But because it was uh, so many good things in it, it's going to be a full hour show on Bloomberg. Well, David Rubenstein, let's listen to Jeffrey Bezos on the all hands meeting. Your stock is actually up 70 percent this year. Um, is there one thing that you think is responsible for that? There's several things, because 70% is pretty good. No, I, um, it's a, you know, I, uh, I have been lecturing, we have all hands meetings at Amazon, and for 20 years, ever since we've been, probably 21 years now, 1997, um, every, at almost every all hands meeting, I said, look, when the stock is up 30% in a month, don't feel 30% smarter. Because when the stock is down 30% in a month, it's not going to feel so good to be, feel 30% dumber. And uh, that's what happens. Uh, never spend any time thinking about the daily stock price. I don't. Jeff Bezos, Lisa Bramo, it's just interesting. Why don't you pick it up with Mr. Rubenstein? Mr. Rubenstein, one thing that I'm struck by is what you said, which is most people of his wealth and his point in life would step down as CEO. How integral is Jeff Bezos to the whole zeitgeist of Amazon, the whole future, the dynamism of this behemoth? Well, uh, I think he's pretty in- important to it because I don't know that there's somebody that tomorrow could easily replace him. I mean, you know, as cemeteries are filled with indispensable people, of course, but in the end, uh, Jeff is so central to that company, I don't think he's planning to step down anytime soon. Uh, in earlier interviews, I've kind of into, I got the sense from him that he intended to do this for another eight to 10 years. So I'm wondering, what was the one thing that stuck out to you about him and about sort of what drives him and what allowed him to create such an incredible company? He's very smart, very driven. Um, he doesn't pay attention to what other people are saying sometimes. And you may remember stock analysts kept saying, you don't have any profit. You're not worrying about profit. And of course, all those people uh, are now um, you know, regretting that they didn't recognize how great the company was going to be. He was focused on building customers. He's very focused on customers being the most important thing in his company, and he puts customers first. Um, unlike some extremely wealthy people, he doesn't show arrogance, in my view. At least I certainly haven't seen it. Uh, he's very modest relative to what his accomplishments yeah. are. And I think most people that we know who built something like that might not be able to be so modest about what he's done or have such a good sense of uh, humor about himself. David, thank you so much and congratulations. It is just a tour de force. This, of course, is the David Rubenstein Show Peer-to-Peer Conversations, an hour-long conversation with Mr. Bezos of uh, Amazon. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.